Please turn at this time in your copy of God's Word to Psalm 90. Psalm 90. We'll be reading Psalms 90 and 91. These are the first two Psalms of Book 4 of the Psalter, there being five books of Psalms within the Book of Psalms. These are the first two Psalms in Book 4. So let's give our attention now to the reading of God's Word, beginning in Psalm 90, verse 1. A prayer of Moses, the man of God. Lord, You have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, wherever You had formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, You are God. You turn man to destruction and say, Return, O children of men, for a thousand years in your sight are like yesterday when it is past and like a watch in the night. You carry them away like a flood. They are like a sleep. In the morning they are like grass which grows up. In the morning it flourishes and grows up. In the evening it is cut down and withers. For we have been consumed by Your anger, and by Your wrath we are terrified. You have set our iniquities before You, our secret sins in the light of Your countenance. For all our days have passed away in Your wrath. We finish our years like a sigh. The days of our lives are seventy years, and if by reason of strength they are eighty years, Yet their boast is only labor and sorrow, for it is soon cut off and we fly away. Who knows the power of your anger? For as the fear of you, so is your wrath. So teach us to number our days, that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long, and have compassion on your servants. O oh, satisfy us early with Your mercy, that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad according to the days in which You have afflicted us, the years in which we have seen evil. Let Your work appear to Your servants and Your glory to their children. And let, beauty, let the beauty of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands. For us, Yes, establish the work of our hands. Psalm 91. He who dwells in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, He is my refuge and my fortress, my God, in Him I will trust. Surely He shall deliver you from the snare of the fowler, and from the perilous pestilence. He shall cover you with His feathers, and under His wings you shall take refuge. His truth shall be your shield and buckler. You shall not be afraid of the terror by night, nor of the arrow that flies by day, nor of the pestilence that walks in darkness, nor of the destruction that lays waste at noonday. A thousand may fall at your side, and ten thousand at your right hand, 
but it shall not come near you. Only with your eyes shall you look and see the reward of the wicked, because you have made the Lord who is my refuge, even the Most High, your dwelling place. No evil shall befall you, nor shall any plague come near your dwelling. For He shall give His angels charge over you to keep you in all your ways. In their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. You shall tread upon the lion and the cobra. The young lion and the serpent you shall trample underfoot. Because He has set His love upon Me, therefore I will deliver Him. I will set Him on high, because He has known My name. He shall call upon Me and I will answer Him. I will be with Him in trouble. I will deliver Him and honor Him. With long life, I will satisfy Him and show Him My salvation. May the Lord bless the reading and the preaching of His Word to us this evening. Amen. Seeking the Lord's help and blessing this evening, let's turn our attention back to the first verse of Psalm 91. We read Psalm 90 and then Psalm 91, but let's take a look at the first verse of Psalm 91. He who dwells in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. He who dwells in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. These first two psalms at the beginning of book four of the book of Psalms are really very closely connected. Uh, Some uh, Jewish rabbis, perhaps many throughout history, have held that not only was Psalm 90 written by Moses, but Psalm 91 as well. And I found that out recently after I had even decided to preach on this text because You don't need to hear it from the Jewish rabbis to see it explicitly in the text. The connection between these two psalms. Such that if Moses didn't write Psalm 91, and perhaps as other commentators say, perhaps David wrote Psalm 91, either way, these two psalms were placed together because they are two sides of the same coin. The prayer that Moses offers up in Psalm 90 is directly answered meticulously in virtually every major theme of what he's asking for in Psalm 90. It's answered in Psalm 91. So it's not surprising that people said these two go together. Perhaps it's even the same author. Uh, Obviously, it's the same author. It's the Holy Spirit. Whether he wants to use Moses and have David finish... Uh, with, uh, with the second part of the equation. Either way, uh, the Old Testament fathers under Ezra, when they compiled the Old Testament books of the Bible and ordered the Psalms in their present form under the inspiration of the Spirit, clearly they saw fit to put these adjacent to one another. Psalm 90, the prayer of Moses, the man of God. Psalm 91, the answer to that prayer. So that sets the course for what we'll be considering tonight and then with God's help 
tomorrow morning and tomorrow evening, we'll be looking at Psalm 91 as the fulfillment of Psalm 90. Now, you may recall that uh, we were right in the middle of a sermon series in the first chapter of the book of Genesis in March of 2020, and the pandemic hit, and all kinds of things were swirling around, and at that time, for better or worse, I felt the Lord leading me to just deviate from that sort of didactic teaching series in Genesis chapter 1 and preach a number of uh, sermon series that seemed to relate to the experience that we were undergoing at that time. And one of those series was a sermon series on Psalm 90. And so uh, I don't expect that even those of you that were here three years ago are going to remember uh, the details of that. But it is on sermon audio. And Really, I had even mentioned in that series that we would hopefully, Lord willing, find a time to follow up on it with a consideration of Psalm 91. And so that's what we're doing here. But just to remind ourselves, since it's been three and a half years since we've been in uh, this neck of the woods, uh, let's remind ourselves that Moses' prayer in Psalm 90 very much reflects his own life experience in at least three ways. Uh, In my sermon on this in the past, I gave six reasons, six ways in which his experience is reflected, but let's limit it to three, at least three ways. Uh, First, in Psalm 90, Moses is writing within the context of God's people in the wilderness because of unbelief. They've been wandering in the wilderness, and they will wander in the wilderness for 40 years, and Moses eventually is not even going to be able to go into the promised land. So he's surrounded by death and futility and disappointment and frustration and many of the attending realities of mankind's fall into sin are swirling around him in the wilderness. And in Psalm 90, he brings these things to bear. He, he, he brings these things before the Lord. But one of the major themes in Psalm 90 uh, connects with Moses' own experience of homelessness. You can see Psalm 90 verse 1, Lord, You have been our dwelling place in all generations. Moses found a home in God. He found a dwelling place in God Himself. And this fits in with his experience because in his life, Moses did not have a home. Moses did not have that sort of uh, comforting foundation and identity and all that we think of when we think of a home and a dwelling place. Moses was, was from here to there and everywhere. You think of his own experience. He's born in Goshen to, to a Hebrew mother and father. But then because of the, the edict of Pharaoh that all such infants are to be thrown into the Nile, uh, he's set adrift in a little basket on the Nile, his new home. And then he's brought in and adopted by Pharaoh's daughter, who takes him in as her own, but then sends him back to the Hebrew camp to be nursed by his own mother in a remarkable turn of God's providence. But then he goes back to be raised in Pharaoh's house, mighty in word and deed. Then he becomes of age and he chooses to identify with the suffering people of God rather than the riches of Egypt. And so so he's back and forth. He struggles to have a home, an identity. Egypt, Goshen, Egypt, Goshen. And at one point, he sees a Hebrew slave being abused and 
in order to defend the life of that slave, he kills an Egyptian. And at this point, his own people betray him and squeal to the government. And the, the Egyptian government is out to get him. And so he has to flee even from what would have been his home. And he goes to Midian and he dwells as a shepherd in the wilderness of Midian for 40 years. He mar- marries the daughter of a, a foreign man. He has a family. And one of his children, he names Gershom. He says, for I am a stranger in a strange land. You see Moses wrestling with this homelessness. Then eventually he goes back to Egypt as God's deliverer and conqueror. So he uh, is led. Uh, The Lord enables him to lead God's people out of bondage in Egypt and into the wilderness where he lives in tents in the wilderness for 40 years. The people were rebellious and disobedient. They wouldn't cross over. And so they're wandering around. At one point he loses his temper and now God says, Moses, you're not going to enter the promised land. He never sets foot in that new home that he was traveling to, uh, even the the land of Canaan. Uh, He saw it from Mount Pisgah. He could see it. He couldn't enter it. Uh, And of course, we know that at death, his soul entered heaven above, which is the great fruition and everything that Canaan was pointing to. And at the transfiguration, Moses was brought down to to be on that Mount of Transfiguration with the Lord Jesus Christ in the land of promise. But Moses dealt with his homelessness by finding refuge, finding his identity, finding his dwelling place in God. We think of the dove that Noah sent from the ark to see if the floodwaters had receded and the dove found no place of rest and returned. You get the sense that that's how Moses was in his life. He served God from one place to the next to the next, a stranger in a strange land, but it was in God that he found his home. And many of us can relate to that, either geographically or denominationally or familially. We find ourselves at times where we can't quite identify with any particular place or situation that we're in. A stranger in a strange land. And yet, we find our dwelling in God. And that's a major theme of Psalm 90. It's it's Moses speaking under inspiration, but speaking from the heart. In addition, there is the theme in Psalm 90 of death. Moses, right from the outset, was threatened with death when, he, when the edict said that he ought to be cast into the Nile. Egypt was rife with infanticide, murdering these little babies, these Hebrew infants. Uh, there was slavery, that, and, and Moses had to defend the life of one of the Hebrews, and he killed and took the life of an Egyptian, and then his life was, was threatened by the government, and then Eventually, he's raised up 40 years later and God strikes Egypt with a plague, killing all the firstborn sons in Egypt. And eventually then God leads them out of Egypt. They go across the Red Sea and God brings death and destruction on the Egyptians, bringing down the house on them. When they get into the wilderness, he's surrounded by death. There's the golden calf incident. 3,000 people die. There's the incident with Nadab and Abihu. Fire from heaven for their uh, strange worship. Their strange fire. God sends fire from heaven and kills two of Aaron's sons. 
There's the judgment of God by fire and burning at Taberah, which means burning. There's the judgment of God at Kibroth Hatava, which is the graves of lust. That's what that means. The people lusted. They complained uh, and they tested the Lord. He, sl- he slaughtered them there. Uh, there's when they came to Kadesh Barnea to enter into the promised land and the ten spies came back with a bad report and they refused to go in. God struck the ten spies dead. God said that the 603,448 Israelites who refused to go in from the non-Levitical tribe, tribes, He said that they would die in the wilderness. And at that point, the Israelites rebelled against God and said, no, now we're going to go into the wilderness. And those soldiers were killed to a large extent. Death around every corner. You have Korah's rebellion with Dathan and Abiram rising up against Moses and Aaron's authority. And God strikes many of them dead. Uh, God struck the Israelites dead with fiery serpents. He struck them at Baal Peor for their idolatry and immorality. 24,000 died. Uh, The physical, or, or we say natural death of Miriam and Aaron Uh, Moses wrestling even with his own death on Mount Pisgah. And that's not even including the war that they fought against Sion and Og, the kings that lived in the land uh, on the other side of the Jordan. So there's death on every side. And you can see in Psalm 90, we read it, we've sung it, this psalm is filled with the reality of death. And that's what Moses is grappling with. Uh, In addition, thirdly, Psalm 90 reflects Moses' experience in terms of patient endurance. Hebrews 11 says that Moses was looking to his reward. He was seeing the invisible God looking to the reward. He was always forward thinking. Uh, Even Mount Pisgah, he's looking ahead into the future of God's people. Even on the Mount of Transfiguration. What does Moses want to talk about? He wants to talk to Jesus with Elijah about Jesus' looming death on the cross, his exodus, as the, Hebrew, as the Greek uh, could be translated, his departure. Uh, he's always looking to the future. And so rather than uh, being overcome with disappointment and dissatisfaction at not being able to enter the promised land himself, he trains Joshua. He instructs the entire nation of Israel, that next generation, by way of his sermons in the book of Deuteronomy. And he gives a long-term outlook that's reflected at the end of Psalm 90. His prayer, after reflecting all uh, all the death and fallenness all around them, God's wrath, God's chastening, uh, he asks the Lord to give the people a heart of wisdom to number their days, to use their time in the wilderness to seek the Lord. He says, return, O Lord, how long? Have compassion. Satisfy us early with Your mercy. Give us reason to rejoice. Restore our joy. Even according to the days in which You afflicted us. He says, uh, let Your servant's work appear, or let Your work appear to Your servants and glory to their children. So he's saying, Lord, appear to our children. Raise up the next generation. Let your beauty be upon us and bless the work of our hands as we seek to equip and empower the next phase in your dealings. Patient 
endurance, looking to that reward. So homelessness, death, patient endurance, looking to the reward. This is the theme of Psalm 90. And in Psalm 91, that prayer is answered. Whether Moses wrote it or not, it's answered. This very prayer, because you look at Psalm 91, and what are the major themes? Well, the first major theme, which runs throughout the entire psalm, is God as the dwelling place of the believer. Psalm 91, verse 1, He who dwells in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, He is my refuge, my fortress. You can go throughout, and we will, Lord willing, throughout these sermons. This is the major theme. If we could say even the major theme of the, of the three that I'm going to mention. Dwelling in the Lord. Just as Psalm 90 began with that, so Psalm 91 says, not just corporately for Israel as a whole, you're our dwelling place, but for every individual believer in that wilderness or in this wilderness in which we live, God is your dwelling place and your place of refuge. Secondly, deliverance. Psalm 91, uh, in, in really with as much vigor as Psalm 90 sets before us death, with the same if not more vigor, Psalm 91 sets before us safety, protection, comfort, assurance. God will protect us even if a thousand people fall right next to you. God will preserve you. Even if you're surrounded, dear believer, by 10,000 and they all fall, God will preserve you. There's a promise of safety, a promise of protection. We'll get into the details, but you see how powerful the answer to prayer is. It's almost beyond what Moses could have asked or imagined. God promises deliverance to the point where the believer, surrounded by death and destruction, can say, verse 2, He is my refuge, my fortress, my God. In Him I will Trust, and just to let you in on something of the Hebrew language, the word trust in Hebrew, frequently when you see it throughout the Psalms, means to take refuge. You'll see that sometimes in our psalm book as we're singing, and you'll say, well, I thought the Scripture said there to trust God, and it's saying hide in God or take refuge in God. Well, it's the same idea. To trust in God in Hebrew is to entrust yourself into His safekeeping. It's to hide in Him. It's to dwell in Him and flee to Him for safety. And so, deliverance uh, is, is a major theme here. Also, this reward that Moses was patiently enduring and laboring and praying for, this reward of dignity and honor. He said, clothe us in the beauty of the Most High God. And God responds in Psalm 91 with a reward of dignity and honor. You see it at the end of the psalm, the end of verse 15, I will deliver him and honor him with long life. Think of Psalm 90. How short our lives are. 70 years, 80 years. Even if you're Methuselah, well nigh into a thousand years, it's but a day in the sight of God. It's but a watch in the night. It's nothing. You have a short life. Psalm 91 says you're going to have a long life. You're going to have a long life. With long life, I will satisfy Him and show Him my salvation. 
Uh, verse 14 as well, because he set his love upon me, therefore I will deliver him. I will set him on high because he has known my name. So dwelling, deliverance, and uh, this reward of dignity and honor, these will be the, the major subjects of our sermons. And so this evening we focus upon God as our dwelling place. He who dwells in the secret place of the Most High. He who dwells in the secret place of the Most High. Now, as much as Psalm 90 and Psalm 91 have in common, there are some differences that once you begin to compare the two and you begin to meditate on these two Psalms, which, which I hope you'll do uh, between now and you know, tomorrow on the Sabbath day, perhaps you'll have some time to be reading over these and thinking about them. But th- there's, uh, there are a number of ways in which Psalm 91 changes the direction of the conversation, changes the emphasis. For instance, Psalm 91 shifts the focus from that which is corporate and collective among God's people as a whole, and it shifts that focus to what is personal and individual. You can see in Psalm 90, and if you have a chance, I'm not going to read all these verses right now, but if you have a chance to look over it, you'll see virtually the entire psalm is in the corporate collective. It's speaking of God's people as a plurality. Uh, Lord, You have been our dwelling place. Uh, And and He goes on to, to speak of God in relation to God's people as a whole. There's a lot of we's and a lot of ours in this psalm. And so even when he's praying for that restoration, that reward of dignity and all of these things, notice he says, verse 12, teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Have compassion on your servants, plural. Satisfy us with your mercy that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. On and on it goes. Let the beauty of the Lord our God be upon us. The emphasis is corporate and collective. And if you think of Israel's experience in the wilderness, when you look at it from a collective standpoint, that really helps you to understand why there's such an emphasis upon death and judgment in Psalm 90. Because from a corporate standpoint, though Israel is God's people, yet in a corporate sense, God is disciplining them and chastening them and killing large numbers of them. That's not speaking from an individual standpoint of God's individual saving, electing, sovereign, gracious love upon each believer. But that's that's looking at the picture in broad strokes, God's dealings with the church, His wrath against the church, His judgment on the church as a whole, a church that was largely filled with unconverted people. Now, it doesn't mean that uh, every believer entered the promised land. Moses was a believer and God disciplined him. But you have to understand Psalm 90 in the context of a covenant community that is largely unconverted. 1 Corinthians 10, it says, with them, with most of them, God was not well pleased. Okay? But Psalm 91 brings special comfort to the individual believer within the midst of a backslidden church, within the midst of an unconverted nation. Psalm 91 says, if you individually take refuge 
under the shadow of the Lord's wings, if you dwell in the secret place of the Most High, then these are promises for you personally, you individually. You think of Daniel. He went into captivity in Babylon and uh, the fact is he suffered greatly with the people of God and yet God was with him. God blessed him. God prospered him. Uh, His experience of captivity was one of blessedness and not merely of chastening. That's what God's saying here. You're still in the wilderness, but as an individual who takes refuge by saving faith in the promises of God, here's what I have in store for you. Here's how I'm going to let my beauty rest upon you. Here's how I'm going to establish the work of your hands. Here's how I'm going to have compassion and mercy on you and give you many reasons to rejoice in the midst of your affliction. It shifts the focus from the corporate to the personal and individual. And that's something we need to hear. Because God's promises are not merely in the corporate and the collective. Yes, Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So there is a promise of perpetual uh, protection and preservation for the church as a whole. And there are many such promises in the Word of God that are brought to us to encourage us about God's faithfulness. That yes, even when there's a wilderness generation that has to die in that wilderness, God's judging many unconverted people, causing the earth to swallow them up. All kinds of reflections of His his fury against sin, and yet collectively he has a remnant and he keeps it going and his church will always be preserved one way or the other. That's comforting. But you know, that corporate promise doesn't save your soul. The fact that you're a member of the church of Jesus Christ and that it's a church that Jesus will not allow the gates of hell to destroy. In fact, The gates of hell won't even be able to hold back the church. That fact alone does not guarantee your salvation personally. You need to take refuge. You need to dwell in the secret place of the Most High. You need to make the Lord your refuge and the Most High your dwelling place, as our psalm says. So it's very pertinent for us. In addition, Psalm 91 addresses its promises specifically, and listen, I'm going to back this up with some Scripture here. It addresses its promises specifically to Christ and all those in Christ. And that's not something we have to go to the New Testament to establish. This psalm addresses its promises to God's believing people who look ahead to Jesus Christ. God's elect remnant within the covenant community. Whether it be in the days of The wilderness wanderings, whether it be in our wilderness wanderings, these promises are specifically to those who have saving faith in Christ and to Christ Himself. Because really, if you look at this psalm, who is it addressed to? Who is it addressed to? To whom is it addressed? Verse 13. It's addressed to the one who will trample the lion and the serpent. That's who this psalm is addressed to. You, and and throughout it, there's a reference to you. Who is the you? Well, we could try to look at other verses and establish, well, who's this talking about? But verse 13 is a dead ringer. We know who this is talking about. 
You shall tread upon the lion and the cobra, the young lion and the serpent you shall trample underfoot. God's people, whether under Moses or David or Ezra, whenever, wherever this was written, they would have understood this as a reference to that first gospel promise in Genesis chapter 3 that God would send the seed of the woman and that her seed would crush the serpent's head. And biblically, we understand that that seed of the woman is Christ and all those in Christ. Because if you look at Romans 16, verse 20, Paul tells the Roman believers, the the corporate people of God, the believers in Rome, he says, you will trample Satan under your feet shortly. So, how are they trampling Satan? Well, because they're in Christ. And how did Christ trample Satan? At the cross. Genesis 3.15 says that uh, the serpent will bruise the heel or will strike the heel of the seed of the woman. This promised seed, this messianic seed, the Savior who would come, He would strike the heel of the Savior. And that if you think of the imagery, uh, you've got the serpent striking the heel, the heel is uplifted, you've got the serpent dangling and Boom! The serpent's head is crushed under the foot of that bruised heel. That heel where the the serpent has struck it and the fangs of poison and death have gone in to that heel and blood has come out. It's a signification of the death and suffering of Christ at the hands of wicked men, agents of the devil. Certainly, even we we know, obviously, God poured out His his own wrath upon Christ on the cross. But the point is, at the cross, Satan was defeated. And Satan is the serpent. And whether you're looking at Psalm 22 or 1 Peter 5, Satan is also the lion. Satan is the lion who's prowling about seeking whom he may devour. Uh, He's the, the lion and the demons surrounding the cross. Psalm 22, the enemies of Christ. And so biblically speaking, this is addressed to the one who would crush the serpent's head and defeat our enemy, the devil. And that is Christ and those who are in Christ. Those who are in Christ not merely with an attachment of a an outward profession of faith or baptism or membership in a branch of the church, but rather saving faith in Christ, taking refuge, fleeing for refuge from the wrath to come into Jesus Christ. His death, His resurrection, His perfect righteousness, the shedding of His blood to cleanse you and make you right with God. This is true saving faith and this is the only way to share in this victory. But my point is that Psalm 91 brings in the messianic hope of salvation and makes promises to those who are united to that messianic uh, Savior, the seed of the woman who crushes the serpent's head. In addition, Psalm 91 sets before us imagery that is utterly stunning and startling, particularly in its Old Testament context verse 1 he who dwells in the secret place of the most high shall abide under the shadow of the almighty verse 4 he shall cover you with his feathers and under his wings you shall take refuge 
He's speaking of the individual believer here as one who has access to the secret place under the shadow of Jehovah's wings. And I submit to you that that is utterly stunning, especially to say that in an Old Covenant context. If this is Moses here, it's all the more stunning and startling, but it would have been so even if David wrote it. Because the secret place and the shadow of God's wings is consistently presented in the Old Testament, especially in the Psalms, as God's tabernacle, even His most holy place, signified with the wings of the cherubim. To come into His secret place, to come before the shadow of His wings and take refuge, my friends, this is a reference to the tabernacle, the temple, the most holy place. Even the holy place. If you were not a priest, you were not getting in there. Okay? But this is saying everyone who believes in this Messiah to come, everyone who takes refuge in the Lord has access to the secret place. You say, that's not supposed to happen in, in the Old Testament because Hebrews 9.8, we hear Christians of a certain variety sometimes quoting this verse, you know, the, the way into the most holy was not yet manifest while the first tabernacle was standing. Well, of course, the way, the truth, and the life, Jesus Christ Himself making a way into the most holy place, that was not yet manifested. Christ Himself was not yet manifest in the flesh, and He had not yet manifested His saving work to make that way and to make it clear and apparent and uh, to, finally and absolutely secured but the fact of the matter is, the Old Testament saints drew near under the shadow of His wings. Whether or not they could go into the tabernacle or the temple, they weren't so foolish as to think that that was anything other than a visible representation of the reality that every believer has through saving faith to come under the shelter of His wings, to dwell in the secret place of the Most High. Notice that... It's not so much that the psalmist here brings God down. God's still the Most High. God is not brought down to us. And of course, some of us this afternoon, we were talking about God as our friend. And, and we're going to look at that. And that's, that's important. But he doesn't say, well, God's now, your, God's now your buddy. God's your best bud. And so He's here to hang with you. He says, this is the Most High God. And you're going into the secret place with Him. He's no less transcendent. Yes, He's your friend. We'll get to that. But he, you're, you're entering into fellowship and communion with the Most High God. None higher. The transcendent, thrice holy Jehovah. The Almighty. The Most High. That's utterly stunning. And it points us to intimate friendship. Intimate friendship. Uh, I, I did gloss over this. I won't, uh, I, I won't chase this down fully, but uh, if you are interested in uh, verses that connect the tabernacle with this language of the secret place and the shadow of the Almighty, uh, you can see that in Psalm 27, 4 and 5, uh, where he says that he desires to inquire in the Lord's house, the Lord's temple, and in verse 5, 
He shall hide me in His pavilion. In the secret place of His tabernacle, He shall hide me. He shall set me upon a rock. David's not a priest. He's not going into the tabernacle. Okay? He understands spiritual communion with God. And he's saying, by faith, I'm entering into that secret place of His tabernacle, His pavilion. Okay, this is the language that's used. You can find it in Psalm 36, 7 and 8. And in Psalm 61, 4, the same thing is mentioned. But this is referencing intimate friendship with the Lord. We're told that Moses, in Exodus 33, 11, we're told that when he went into the tabernacle, uh, back in verse 9 it says, when Moses entered the tabernacle, that the pillar of cloud descended and stood at the door of the tabernacle, and the Lord talked with Moses. And it goes on, verse 11, So the Lord spoke to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. Not just a friend of Abraham, but a friend of Moses. A friend of every believer who takes refuge and shelter under the shadow of his wings. Moses is in the literal tabernacle. He's, he, he's interacting with God as it were face to face. And God speaks to him face to face as a man speaks to his friend. Intimate friendship. And this intimacy is really highlighted in verse 14 of our psalm, Psalm 91. Because He has set His love upon me. So you see, God brings the believer into fellowship and friendship. And there's a love between God and the believer. And between the believer and God. A mutual relationship of love. The believer sets his love upon the Lord. Therefore, I will deliver him. I will set him on high because he has known my name. Now, I would argue some of these verses are are especially relevant in the life of Christ. And Lord willing, in our communion sermon tomorrow evening, we're going to look at the Christological element of this. But for now, looking at those who are in Christ by saving faith, it's saying that they love the Lord. They set their love upon Him. It's a decision. And they enter into communion with Him. And it says, they know My name. Because He knows, He has known my name. And of course, this reminds us of an excellent sermon we heard a couple weeks back on Jacob intimately coming before the Lord and saying, what is your name? And, and we saw that theme running throughout the Scripture of how God reveals Himself and reveals His name and God blessed Jacob. And we saw the connection between God blessing His people and putting His name on His people. Numbers chapter 6. And, and we said it's most likely that, that the Lord in some sense, as He blessed Jacob, declared the reality of His name, Jehovah. And, and that's what's described here. This intimate knowledge of God. God draws near. Psalm 25 verse 14, those who fear the Lord and, and keep His covenant... He draws near to them. And there's a close friendship and intimacy. The secret of the Lord, the secret close friendship of the Lord is with those who fear the Lord. And it's to them that He reveals His covenant. An intimate friendship that every believer is promised. And uh, you think of Samson's parents when the angel of the covenant appeared to them and they said, what is your name? And, and he says, why do you ask my name? For... 
it is wonderful, or as the King James says, it is secret. The, the secret friendship of the Most High in the secret place. God draws near and gives His people glimpses of Himself and who He is in that intimate relationship. And of course, we could also look at um, the, the stunning statements of deliverance and safety. We'll save those for tomorrow morning. But I want us to finish our time here with some application. Psalm 91 urges and invites us to dwell in the secret place. And it does so in at least five ways. And perhaps as you've been hearing this sermon thus far, uh, certain directives, certain exhortations have been coming out of what's been said here in terms of your need to dwell in the secret place of the Most High. But I would argue there are at least five ways that we can do that. First, first and foremost, through personal saving faith in Jesus Christ. Without that, you have nothing else. And you're dying in the wilderness and your carcass is lying in the wilderness with all the rest of the unbelieving Israelites who would not enter the promised land by faith. They wouldn't do it. And they died in the wilderness and they, they didn't learn to number their days and consider their latter end. They died in their unbelief. They never entered His rest through faith in His promises. My dear friend, you must exercise personal saving faith. He who dwells in the secret place of the Most High. And this is something that you need to do. Jesus says, this is the work of God that you believe on Him whom He has sent. John chapter 6. It's not a, a work that's meritorious or a work that somehow fulfills some condition that earns you salvation. It's not like that. But faith is something you exercise. Faith is something you need to flee. As it says, the word trust in Hebrew, it's really saying uh, flee to Him. Take refuge in Him. Can you say of the Lord, verse 2, He is my refuge and my fortress, my God, and in Him I will trust. It's something that you have to do. Of course, it's a gift from God, but it's a gift from God that enables you to do something, to exercise personal saving faith, verse 9, because you have made the Lord, who is my refuge, even the Most High, your dwelling place. No evil shall befall you, nor any plague come near your dwelling. We'll look at deliverance tomorrow, but, but just in terms of this intimacy, this friendship, the judge of the universe, the creator of the ends of the earth, is, is setting before you a blessed life of fellowship and friendship in His covenant. And He says it's for all those who make me their refuge, who make me their dwelling place, who make me their home. You may relate to Moses. You may feel like a stranger in a strange land. But Moses found that security. He found that peace. He found that home. He found a place in which to dwell. And it was in the Lord God Himself. Come to Jesus. Come unto Him, you who are weary and heavy laden, you who are homeless, you who are discouraged, dejected. Come to, to a realization, in fact, that at the end of the day, 
even as good as you may think you have it, you say, I've got a home, I've got a family, I've got, a, I've got this, I've got that. Ultimately, my friend, these things are perishing away. And when the floodwaters come, you're either inside of Christ, your ark of salvation, or you're out. You're either before and under the shadow of His wings such that no evil shall befall you and uh, you'll only see the destruction of the wicked but you won't experience it. Either you're in the ark or you're out. And you need to make Him your dwelling. You need to believe His promise and enter into the secret place. Secondly, through secret worship. The Scriptures speak to us of the Christian life in its personal, individual element as a a hidden life. Paul says in Colossians 3 that you died. If you're a Christian, you followed step one, on to step two, well, you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. You have a hidden life. You have a hidden life that no one else can see. You have a prayer life that Jesus says is hidden and ought to stay hidden. Jesus says you have an inner life of giving. You give to this cause. You give to that cause. And other than the treasurer who sends you the tax reform, whatever, other than that, it's, it's, secret. it's between you and God. It's secret worship. You're secretly offering things to God. You're secretly making sacrifices. You're secretly fasting, but not even insinuating in any way that you're doing any of these things. You're, you're you know, making yourself look nice, putting oil on your face. Jesus says all these things are secret. You don't want the reward of people thinking through these insinuations that you're such a great spiritual uh, giant. No, it, it, it's secret worship. It's the hidden life. Uh, he says the secret of the Lord, Psalm 25 verse 14, is, is with those who fear Him. And He reveals to them the things of His covenant. It, it, it's a secret thing. Uh, there's a tendency, social media especially, you've got these people on social media and they're telling you everything they've done and everything they're doing and, and uh, you know, I, I got this sandwich and then they post that and oh, it, the first bite tasted good and, and they're play by play and we can do this spiritually and people, you know, again, we can't judge motives here, my friends, we can't judge motives. Um, but it has been a problem, I can say for myself as well. Right? I'm reading a good book. And uh, what percentage of the good things that I read in the book am I, am I sending out and texting out? And, 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 and am I trying to give the impression to other people? I read this book and I read that book and look at me. I'm so smart. I, fa- I mined out this you know, 500-page book and found this little nugget of insight. Well, my friends, we need to be careful with that. There's a secretness. There's a, there's a spiritual modesty. Do you have secrets with God? Do you have secrets with God? Things that you go into the presence of the Lord, you bring before Him, you don't talk about it to anybody else. Things that He reveals to you, things, scriptures that He you know, emblazons in your mind, on your heart, that he, he speaks to you through His Word and Spirit. Not special revelation, but taking special revelation in His Word and, and teaching you and As Psalm 25 says, He's your teacher. Do you have that secret relationship with God? Secrets between you and God. It's so secret, your right hand doesn't know what your left hand is doing. In fact, on Judgment Day, when the Lord says, My sheep, you've done all these things to the least of these, my brethren. They say, what are you talking about? 
I don't, what, when did we do this? When did we do, they're not even aware of it, my friends. So far from boasting in it, okay, they say, Lord, when? We don't even remember doing these things. Their concern is the secret place. And they keep it secret. They, don't, they keep it secret from themselves, even, if we can say that. If there's a question that, that governs their heart, especially at a time like communion, it's, it's a different question. It's, uh, Lord, is it I? Remember when Jesus had the disciples together before the Last Supper, um, and He revealed to them that one of them would betray Him. They all said it. I'm not sure Judas said it, but the rest of them, they're saying, Lord, is it I? Lord, is it I? So far from from being concerned with a level of achievement and attainment and a spiritual resume or training for the spiritual Olympics or something like that, Lord, is it I? Maybe I'm, am I? Lord, would I betray you? Lord, when did I do this? I don't even remember my own good works. Secret. Spiritual. My friends, when you come to the Lord's table, to the, to the extent that you have secrets with the Lord, you will find a secret joy and experience at the Lord's table. Secret worship. Thirdly, abiding in God. Abiding in God. He who dwells in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. These are two very important words, dwell and abide. The word dwell means um, to dwell in the land. It means this is, this is where you live, this is where the place that you inhabit, this is where you abide, it's your everyday life. If, if I say I dwell in the state of Michigan, then that means Pretty much day in and day out, everything I do is included in that. I'm in the state of Michigan. That's where I live. That's where I dwell. That's where I abide. Every aspect of my life, every moment of every day is in the Most High. The Most High is my dwelling place. And this is important that we abide in God. That we make our residence in God. This is what the New Testament means. When it speaks of abiding in Christ, He's the vine, we're the branches, we're to be constantly connected with Him. Not that every moment is a time of secret worship. There are rhythms to life. We're not in heaven yet, but there, there's a rhythm. You have the six days of work and recreation, you have the one day of rest and worship, and even throughout every day, you have times of secret worship, hopefully sizable, significant times. You begin and end your day uh, with the Lord. But there are other times when you're not in direct secret acts and exercises of worship. But you ought to be abiding in God then too. So this is something that remains. It applies to all of life. It applies all the time. Paul says that you're to walk in the Spirit. And in Greek, the word walk means to live. It's not just walking, you know, as you're walking down the street, but it's saying life is lived moment by moment, step by step, day by day. Abide in Christ, walk in the Spirit, live and dwell in God Himself. By creation, we live and move and have our being in God. Even unbelievers are confronted with God's general revelation. 
His glory in the heavens and in His handiwork and in their own conscience, they're confronted with who God is at every moment. But you see, the believer in a special way abides and dwells in God every moment of every day. And to the extent that we're not aware of this, that's why we become worldly and unholy. But the truth sets us free. And the truth, in this case, John brings it to our attention in vivid terms. 1 John chapter 4 and verse 16. Verse 15, whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in Him and He in God. And we have known and believed the love that God has for us. God is love and He who abides in love abides in God and God in Him. I want you to think about that. As a believer, you are every moment of every day living and moving and having your being in God who is love. So let's just, you know, do a little... uh, I don't know, do a little algebra there and say, if you're abiding in God and God is love, then you're abiding in love. You, if you by faith perceive it, it's going to be of great benefit to you. But you need to know it's the case at all times. You are abiding in love. You're surrounded by God's love. Every aspect of God's creation ought to be shouting at you that God loves you. And I'm not going to work that out, and, and, but if, if you meditate on it, if you think about it, all the good things God gives you. God loves me. I'm His child. God's protecting me. Look at all the things that are happening around me. Look at all the things that aren't happening. Look at all the evils that He's protected me from at this very moment. And, and we see God's love reflected in every square inch of our experience. Or at least we ought to, and we can, increasingly. That's holiness, friends. That's holiness. Uh, It's not just a negative subtraction. It's the greatest addition imaginable. God everywhere in everything. He loves me. I'm abiding in His love for me and nothing can separate me from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Romans 8, nothing. Uh, we'll, we'll see that, Lord willing, tomorrow as, as that emphasis on deliverance. But we, we abide in God. Uh, And you have to remind yourself, why do we have secret worship? In some sense, in some sense, one of the purposes is to remind us that we're living and moving and having our being in God's love all the time. Now, we're also having our being in God's holiness and justice. Again, work that out for yourself. But in secret worship, at the beginning of the day, at the end of the day, you're reminding yourself throughout your life Keeping yourself on short accounts to be reminded that yes, God's love is everywhere surrounding me. And what a peace, what a joy. If that's not a taste of heaven, my friends, I don't know what is. Abiding in God. Speaking of heaven, fourthly, heavenly longings. In heaven, Jesus tells us in Revelation chapter 3 and verse 12. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go out no more. Sometimes we feel as though, even though we're seeking to abide in God in in a general sense across the board, we feel that our secret worship really is 
the, the most intimate time that we have with the Lord. And we feel that when we leave secret worship and we go out into the world, that we're losing something. And I'm saying, in our third point, I think we can improve on that. I think we can abide in God every moment of every day, or at least increase in that. But the fact of the matter is, in reality, there's still quite a bit lacking in our everyday life as compared to our secret worship. Or, or in our six days compared to the Sabbath. Or in certain parts of our Sabbath where we're in the church and we're with believers and we're worshiping and we're praying and we're taking the Lord's Supper versus other times on the Sabbath. There are these gradations of holiness and communion with God. You have the outer court, you have the most, or the, the holy place, and then you have the most holy place. It's very similar in our Christian lives today. And so we long for that time when we shall be in God's intimate presence and fellowship in a way that transcends our experience here and we'll never go out. We'll never be done. We'll be with Him. We will see Him as He is in Christ and we will perceive Him as He is in in terms of His divine nature spiritually. We have these heavenly longings. Revelation 3.12, and if, if you kind of invert some of the numbers there and go to Revelation 21.3, it's an easy way to remember these two verses. Revelation 3.12, and then go backwards the other way. Revelation 21.3, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and He will dwell with them, and they shall be His people. God Himself will be with them and be their God. So heaven is the secret place writ large. The secret place is the only place. The public place. The whole thing is secret. And we long for that. And by faith, which is the substance of things not yet... uh, It's the, uh, the substance of things hoped for. And the evidence of things not seen. We have... Hope for heaven. We have not yet seen heaven. But by faith, again, as we contemplate heaven, we can do God's will on earth as it is in heaven. The angels are surrounded by God's glory in heaven and they obey God in heaven, surrounded by a sense of His love and a sense of His presence. We are to go about our everyday lives, every aspect of our lives, surrounded by His presence and like the angels in heaven, doing God's will yet on earth as it is in heaven. And therefore, heavenly longing uh, is, is transformed into earthly service. Well, fifthly and finally, we dwell in the secret place as a congregation at the Lord's table. In the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, you can't miss the imagery. We're in God's house. We're at the Lord's table. We have the wine of gladness. We have the bread of the presence. We have a picture of the heavenly marriage feast. All of these things are present. It is the New Testament holy of holies where we comprehend with all the saints the immeasurable love of Jesus Christ which surpasses knowledge. And as as much as we long for heaven and as much as we uh, contemplate heaven in the secret place, we ought to come to the Lord's table recognizing 
that in some sense, when we come around that table, that we are in the corporate secret place. I know that sounds like an oxymoron, but when you come to the Lord's table, in some sense, public worship itself, but when you come to the Lord's table, you're in the secret place. You're in the Holy of Holies as it manifests itself in the New Testament. And all of the priesthood of God's believers come to this table and feast upon Him. In, at His altar, that being Christ Himself. And you will get more of Christ. Listen, biblically speaking, there is more to be had of Christ at this most holy place, at this secret place of the Most High God, than even in your private worship. There is more at this table as you surround yourself with other blood-bought believers at this table and you see God's grace in their lives and you take in God's Word and His promises and you begin to think more about heaven. My friends, heaven is not just you in a private room. Jesus says, go to the secret place, shut the door. Heaven is a place for all of God's people in communion with Christ. It's a corporate place. It's a place of a great multitude that no one can number. So in one sense, you're going to have a greater perception of heaven at the Lord's table than you are in your prayer closet. There's more to be had. Christ promises more grace a more vivid, more powerful presence in the Lord's Supper if we had time to chase down all those verses, but it is the fellowship and communion of His body and His blood, 1 Corinthians 10. He's there. He's here. And as you prepare to come into that secret place, as you think and examine yourself in preparation, to enter the secret place with the people of God tomorrow evening. We're told in Psalm 90 that the way in which we uncover the sins that we need to repent of, the secret sins, the hidden sins, the sins that that other people don't know about that we need to deal with, the sins that we don't even know about, we need to have them brought to light. How How do we uncover these sins? so that we can confess them and bring them to the Lord's table and revel in their having been taken away from us and unburden ourselves with the forgiveness of specific sins by the blood of Christ. How do we do that? Well, verse 8 of Psalm 90, you've set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your countenance. My dear friends, Examine yourself in the secret place. Examine, don't examine yourself with yourself by yourself. Make certain that before you begin to examine yourself in light of the law of God, before you begin to rake yourself over the coals and convict yourself of sin and bring biblical commands and imperatives to bear on your heart and life, examine yourself. Make sure that you're not alone. Make sure that God is with you. Make sure that you've entered into the secret place in prayer and in reliance on God and in faith in His promises. That is the only context in which it is safe to examine yourself. If you do it on your own, 
if you do it without a thought of God being with you, His promises applying to you, if you do it in any other way than before His face, if you try to examine your your secret sins and keep them a secret from Him, my friends, it will be self-destructive. It will ruin your faith. It will diminish your joy. It will disqualify you in some sense to come to the table. But you examine yourself before the light of His countenance. So that when we gather together in the presence of the Lord at His table, it may be said of us, as is said of the church in Psalm 45, She shall be brought to the King in robes of many colors. The virgins, her companions who follow her, shall be brought to you. With gladness and rejoicing they shall be brought. They shall enter the King's palace. Let's pray. O Lord our God, we desire deeper and deeper fellowship with You in the secret place. We recognize that it is only through the shed blood of Christ that we could even dare to come. And we feel as the publican beating his breast, standing afar off, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. But we know that he went down to his house justified. And no doubt if it was more than a parable and he lived to see another day, he would have gone back to God's house justified and rejoicing and taking refuge though he be not a priest yet under the shadow of your wings in the most holy and most secret place. Give us these things and enable us to abide in them at all times and in all places. In Jesus' name, Amen.